continuing with the chapter called Practicing Dharma and this is uh, this part is called The Path to Peace In the past, because roots of desire, aversion and delusion already existed in the mind Whenever you caught sight of the slightest pleasant or unpleasant thing, the mind would react immediately. You'd take hold of it and have to experience either happiness or suffering, and you'd be constantly involved in these mental states. Through wise reflection, you can see that you're subject to old habits and conditioning. The mind itself is actually free, but you have to suffer because of your attachments. That's how it is, as long as the mind doesn't know itself as long as it's not illumined. It is not free. It's influenced by whatever phenomena it experiences. In other words, it's without a refuge, unable to truly depend on itself. In contrast to this, the original mind is beyond good and bad. But when you separate from original mind, everything becomes uncertain, and there's unending birth and death, insecurity, anxiety and hardship, without any way of bringing it to cessation. Ordinarily, if someone criticizes you, you'll feel upset. Accepting sense impressions without full mindfulness in this way causes an experience like being stabbed. This is clinging. Once you've been stabbed, there's becoming, change, and this is the cause for birth into some further state. But if you train yourself not to attach importance to phenomena, nothing is created in the mind. It will be like someone scolding you in a foreign language. The words would have no meaning for you, so you wouldn't absorb that information and create suffering for yourself. So this is again continuing his um, reflections on original mind and uh, the mind free of of, uh, obscurations and confusions. Um, uh, uh, Just having that as a framework for our practice is is a helpful thing, just to... Uh, and I feel that uh, it's often uh, most important to uh, take a particular note when the, the mind is has just let go, when the mind is quite awake, quite alert, and has just let go um, and uh, dropped some thought or feeling or physical sensation or sound that we're hearing, and it's just uh, let go of it, to consciously notice w- what's the mind like when there's no grasping. And so sometimes it can come across like some sort of um, super uh, special event um, that changes life forever, but I would uh, I would suggest I would say and, and I would say in my own experience that just in those small moments when the grasping stops when there's a relaxation of the heart, then in that moment then there's a, a clear distinct taste of this is the nature of mind when it's free of grasping, and that uh, and right there as it was saying yesterday there's that. Uh, purity, radiance, peacefulness in that moment of when the grasping stops, uh, the mind is is awake, there's uh, a quality of simplicity, of naturalness a quality of spaciousness no sense of self and a, and a kind of brightness or uh, and alertness so that, that uh, it, it's not something like uh, remote and far away but whenever the grasping stops <laughs> then that's the, the quality uh, of mind and that it's the, the habits of, of grasping that continually re-obscure and, and re 
so mask uh, the that natural quality of mind. So uh, again, as Zhang Pucha was saying himself, it's not far away. It's not somewhere else. It's it's in this very body, this very mind, that we discover this. And uh, and when giving meditation instruction, uh, probably at the um, the beginning of this retreat, I can't remember. <laughs> I forget the the kind of morning reflections I gave uh, in early January, but uh, in almost every retreat uh, I, I lead, then uh, this is a point that I make of just noticing when the, when there's a letting go, when there's a, when the grasping, whether it's to a sound or a sensation or a memory or a feeling or a mood, when the grasping has stopped, just notice what's present, what's the quality of the of the present experience when there's a cessation of grasping. And just that quality of spaciousness, simplicity, nothing to get rid of, nothing to get hold of, and no one to be, nowhere to go, that's a, that natural quality, that right, right there, that's the, the taste of, of the deathless. And there's a, in, some, in, the, in the suttas it also says the, the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. And another place it says, the ending of becoming is Nibbāna, bhavāni rodo nibbānaṁ. So I, uh, I, even though it can, some, using a phrase like the ending of grasping can sound like some sort of grand, ta-da, kind of event at the, as a sort of finale of, of uh, the practice, it's really, I would say, this a moment by moment uh, in, the, um, uh, in the, the flow of working with the mind when the, the grasping is absent, it's in that moment, notice what's present, and then you don't have to tell yourself this is peaceful or this is spacious or uh, whatever. You can uh, it can be felt, it can be known directly. And uh, in this respect, one of the um, the teachings that uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa emphasized a lot uh, is the um, uh, the shorter discourse on the destruction of craving and the the middle length discourses the Chula Tanha Sankhaya Sutta and uh, it starts off with uh, with um, the uh, a, a dialogue between uh, Indra Saka the, the the ruler of the Tavatinsa heaven and um, and the Buddha and uh, uh, and then in, in that dialogue the Buddha says um, well I think it starts off with Saka saying uh, what you know? What is uh, the um, the most important thing to to learn? What's the most important thing to remember? And the Buddha uses this this four word phrase: "Sabe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya." Nothing whatsoever should be grasped at or clung to. Don't cling to anything. And then the Buddha says, with respect to that, if you've heard this, you've heard everything. If you've understood this, you've understood everything. If you've practiced this, you've practiced everything. If you've fully realized this, you've fully realized everything. So Ajahn Buddha Dasa was fond of saying the whole Tipitaka is summed up in those four words. <laughs> it's Abe Dhamma Nalang Abhinivesaya. Don't cling to anything. And that uh, that um, is really the very the very core, the kind of heart essence of the practice. And uh, I was mentioning that the, the Vimalakirti Sutra, um, I bought a copy along uh, uh, yesterday, I think. Yeah. But um, it's kind of it's interesting that in the... the um, the Vimalakirti Sutra, where the uh, the the uh, uh, the arahants of the uh, of the uh, of the Buddha's assembly, people like you know, Sariputta and others, seem to be made be made fools of or being looked down upon to having narrow-minded views. Uh, when Vimalakirti, 
sort of spells out what is the the kind of the essence of uh, of the practice of dharma then uh, uh, and I, I I checked this with a Sanskrit scholar, <laughs> so, so that when um, when uh, Vimalakirti is explaining, so you know what is the absolute essence of uh, of the practice of Dharma, then the, the it's the Sanskrit version of Sabe Dhamma Nalang Abhinivesaya. <laughs> it's exactly the same phrase, but in Sanskrit rather than Pali. That's what that's what he says. So that it's in chapter six of the Vimalakirti Sutra. Um, if you're interested, I uh, didn't bring it along today, but um, and, and so that's intriguing to me. There's also there's some other interesting parallels between that that sutta because uh, in uh, in the um, uh, the Pali, the, there's a nickname is used for King for Saka, which is Kosia, which means the owl. It was like a nickname was the owl, the night the bird that flies around at night time. And in the Sanskrit, it's the same. Kosika is is uh, used. So they have that same phrase and also that same nickname for for Saka is uh, or Chakra is is in the Sanskrit is also appears there. So there's some kind of um, Parallels between those those two, but it is kind of interesting that the 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 um, the great elders of the southern tradition seem to be being made or put down or made fun of, and then it says, "So what's the essence of the teaching?" And it's <laughs> this exact same phrase that you get in the uh, in the Pali as well. So that uh, there's a, there's a lot more in common, I would say, in the in those teachings than might appear at the surface. So also in this. Um, uh, in this uh, passage from Lumpur Cha, when he says, in contrast to this, the original mind is beyond good and bad. And so this is something that, uh, taking a phrase like that, uh, the mind can, can make um, various sort of unhelpful interpretations beyond good and evil. You, know, you can think of, oh, yes, well, the Dharma is beyond good and evil, so therefore everything that I do is is right. <laughs> so I, I want to identify with that, so Nothing that I do or think or say can be considered evil because I, I, I love the Dharma and everything that I do is, is in tune with Dharma. As an idea, <laughs> if it's an actuality, then it's, it's no problem. But what we can easily do as human beings is take hold of an idea, like uh, to be beyond good and evil, and then uh, be unconsciously being motivated by all sorts of self-centered and unskillful attitudes and you're sort of labeling it as pure activity and sort of enlightened activity, but it's uh, un- unconsciously being influenced by all sorts of biases of uh, greed, hatred, delusion, fear, and, and so on and so forth. So that when, uh, when uh, you have a phrase like the original mind is beyond good and bad, um, then it's, it's good to tread carefully. I think there's also a... Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, to remember, uh, mention him again. There was a Beyond Good and Evil was one of the pieces that he uh, he wrote and was uh, famous for. And he also got um, sort of misquoted and misused along the way uh, in uh, in later years. So uh, tread carefully with respect to uh, the idea of being beyond good and good and bad. That uh, if the um, uh, if the heart is totally in tune with Dhamma, then it's incapable of acting unskillfully. Um, and uh, again, if a couple of weeks ago I was mentioning these two suttas uh, that you find in the 
uh, numerical discourse is the book of the sevens uh, 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 to two different wanderers that the, uh, the Buddha was talking to, uh, Sajha and Suttava, and uh, he's explaining to them that the nature, <coughs> the nature of the enlightened mind. And in these two these two little discourses, he uh, he said the Buddha says to these wanderers uh, from from a different sect. So an enlightened being, an arahant, cannot possibly deliberately take life. It's 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 impossible. They, they cannot do it. It's something that that they're incapable of. They can't deliberately steal anything. They can't take anything that's not uh, that's not given to them. They can't deliberately. Uh, say take advantage of other people's property. They they can't engage in any kind of sexual activity. This is completely um, un, uh, uninteresting, unappealing for them. They can't tell a lie. And so that uh, the the natural disposition of the, of the enlightened mind is is formed in these these ways. So that um, the uh, I would say when the when that original mind is is realized, then that the the quality of sila comes naturally with it. It's not, but it's also again, as I was saying a little while ago, it's not as though a, a, an arahant is following lots of rules, <laughs> but rather the, the natural disposition of the free mind is to be completely honest, completely harmless, uh, completely uh, sort of um, uh, free of of neediness and um, and uh, or trying to to get anything from from others or get rid of things. So that it's a uh, there's a a natural uh, purity of heart. Uh, so it's formalized in terms of precepts that are uh, are being kept, but um, at its essence, you have the it's the natural conduct of the of the awake mind. So when you, when you come across stories of of famous gurus who behave in all sorts of colorful and uh, shocking ways. Um, my general impression is that they're not quite as enlightened as they present themselves to be. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. I would like to add about Vimalakiti. <laughs> the most funny thing is about uh, Pamhakasapa, which is my most favorite uh, disciple of all. Mm-hmm. You know, he exchanged robe, or Buddha gave robe to him. Mm-hmm. And then when he got married, he had this, you know, the most beautiful woman, but he had this flower on the bed, so they would sleep uh, different side. Mm-hmm. And then also he like in the Tudongka. But the most funny thing is about the Vinamar Kitty makes fun that he was always looking to go to the poorest person or the repussy. And he was saying, Vinamar Kitty was saying, uh, it's all equal, the rich or the poor, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't be looking to go just to the poorest the, people. The poor people. Yeah. But anyway, it was very. I think the the one who wrote this very sharp. <laughs> the way they you know, pick up all each mm-hmm. disciple character and and they point the finger. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, when I, cause I was asked to write a review of that this, tran- this new translation of it, so I had to think well, how, <laughs> how to to really explore this. And I think it's the kind of um, the the genuine. And I think it's a very good translation because they're not uh, the people who translated it were not trying to uh, take what they call a triumphalist attitude, like we're better than that lot, but rather that 
trying to uncover any kind of attachment, any kind of identification, like uh, any sense of, of, um, of uh, uh, say, taking a particular practice or a particular attitude as being in itself something that was pure or noble or good, and and so cutting away every kind of uh, of attachment and 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 kind of grasping attitude of the mind. So that uh, I think they they did a very a, a very good job they emphasize much more the um that sense of uh, the the emptiness of all conventions and attachments but um there but with a uh, a um uh, not using it as a as a way to make the the southern buddhist schools sort of uh, look uh, foolish or inferior even though the, the text can easily suggest that and it's got that kind of tone they don't this translation uh, from the buddhist text translation society they they didn't uh, emphasize that side. They made it much more of a, a very clear wisdom teaching. So. Any other questions, thoughts? Okay, so to continue. Samadhi means a mind that is firmly concentrated. And the more you practice, the firmer it becomes. The more you contemplate, the more confident you become. It becomes easier to know the arising and passing away of consciousness from moment to moment. The mind becomes truly stable to the point where it can't be swayed by anything at all, and you're absolutely confident that no phenomena whatsoever have the power to shake it. The mind experiences good and bad mental states, happiness and suffering, because it's deluded by its objects. The objects of mind are the objects of mind, and the mind is the mind. <laughs> if the mind is not deluded by them, there is no suffering. The, undelu the undeluded mind can't be shaken. This is a state of awareness in which all phenomena are viewed entirely as elements arising and passing away. It might be possible to have this experience, yet still be unable to fully let go. Whether you can or cannot let go, don't let this bother you. Before anything else, you must at least develop and sustain this level of awareness and fixed determination. You have to keep at it and destroy the afflictions through determined effort, penetrating ever deeper into the practice. So this uh, this uh, principle of uh, the uh, the mind is the mind and the mind objects are the, are the mind objects that was one of the um, the main teachings that uh, Lumpur Chah received when he's, with his very short stay with uh, with uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, with Lumpur Man. And that uh, it was something that hadn't really been totally clear to him when, uh, in his earlier years. So he'd he'd been uh, on uh, on his travels. He'd been a Tudong monk by this time, and think about 1948, uh, 40, uh, 49. So it was uh, shortly before Lumpur Man passed away. Yeah, Lumpur Chah had been um, uh, wandering as a, as a bhikkhu for several years by this time, and had managed to find uh, Lumpur Man was living at Wat, Wat Nang Pur uh, in Sakonakorn province at that time. He had settled down. For many, many years, Lumpur Man never, never spent the rains retreat in the same place two years in a row. He would always just keep wandering on, but when he got to his, uh, into his le later years, he wasn't strong enough to keep traveling, so he settled in, in Sakonakorn. Um, so anyway, that, this was uh, the, the prime teaching or the principal teaching, that I think, on the third night that Lumpur Chah was there and that Lumpur Man made that very, very clear 
but the, the the mind that knows is one thing and the mind objects are another thing that and that's why liberation is possible if every aspect of mind was tied to uh, to objects to the five khandhas then uh, liberation would be impossible because that the uh, uh, the fundamental nature of mind uh, and the uh, quality of awareness is not uh, limited by uh, the mind objects is not uh, identified with the mind objects that's why liberation is possible and so uh, and this is a sort of really the, the core of insight meditation the objects of mind are objects of mind the mind is the mind if the mind is not deluded, deluded by them there is no suffering the undeluded mind can't be shaken this is a state of awareness in which all phenomena are viewed entirely as elements arising and passing away so again, that can drift if it, if that principle is taken hold of unskillfully, it can turn into a kind of abstraction, like just sort of recording the data of of your life, just uh, hearing, feeling, smelling, tasting, touching, human being born, person dying, somebody in, somebody in tears, just <laughs> hearing, seeing, and it can be a, a sort of an unhelpful kind of dissociation. And just sort of a, uh, recording the data of of experience. So, yes, things are being known, but there's a kind of aversion a or a, 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 a pushing away that. So this, um, uh, as we were talking about uh, a couple of days ago, yesterday, that the um, that sense of attunement to the world and fully attentive to the world, but not uh, not identified with the world. That's really what I would say is the essence of. The, the middle way, and that the um, the, the, uh, the great enlightened beings uh, they are fully attentive to the people around them and the, the uh, their own body and the the, the the impressions and feelings that arise from sense contact, but their mind is not shaken or it's not reactive in respect to that. And so um, when uh, uh, Lumpur Dun, who was another of Ajahn Man's disciples, when he was asked uh, in in his old age, one of his disciples asked him, "Yeah, uh, uh, Lumpur, do you ever get angry?" And he said, "Well, uh, it, it arrives, but I don't accept it. Like you know, it's like the the delivery, the deliver, <laughs> the, kind of the 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 postman arrives, but I don't accept the del- delivery. Me, there my owl. It kind of it's there, but I don't I don't receive it. And um, so that." Um, uh, the mind is not suppressing the world of sense experience. It's not uh, averse to it, but it's just you know, not not picking things up in a reactive way. I was also reminded uh, I, uh, about um, I think there was the uh, uh, I think uh, we were talking about this yesterday or the day before about um, sort of dissociation from from the sense world. Um, Sometimes it's it's useful to be able to do that, or like uh, saying that the Buddha said that the only way he could feel uh, comfort was to completely absorb his mind into emptiness. When Ajahn Chah was already paralyzed, um, then he had a lot of medical medical people coming to help out and offered their assistance in one way or another. And at a certain point, um, they did an X-ray of him. I'm not sure exactly why. I was living over here in England, so I, I was a bit remote from it. But Ajahn Pasano told me this story that they, they gave Lumpur an X-ray, and, uh, and Ajahn Pasano was the abbot of Wat Pananachat at that time, so he was very involved in the the, uh, the care for Lumpur Chah and uh, helping to 
uh, organize the, the nursing procedures. And anyway, one of the doctors said, um, so uh, uh, Lumpur has got a lot of damage in this knee. Um, did, did he ever have any kind of treatment? There don't seem to be any kind of, he didn't, doesn't seem to have had any surgery. There's no scars for, for all of the damage in that knee. And, uh, and so Ajahn Pasana said, damage? What, what damage? He said, oh, he's, I think it was like the, the uh, meniscus were all the, uh, the kind of um, uh, the, the kind of um, uh, shock absorbers of the knee <laughs> were all kind of ripped up and, and had uh, uh, broken apart. He said, well, yeah, this, this knee's a real mess. He must have experienced a lot of pain. Uh, from this, because the the, the uh, all of the kind of um, the padding in the knee is, is all is all broken up and damaged, and so it must have been a bit of an issue for him. And he said he never mentioned anything at any time whatsoever. And there's no clue that that he was experiencing any kind of discomfort from that. And he would sit for hours and hours and hours talking to people or in meditation. And so he, he said, "Are you sure?" And he said, "Oh yeah, this, his knee's a real mess." And, and he was trying to think, did Lumpur ever mention something about uh, I'll sit on a chair because of my knee or, uh, uh, or like well, this, or my knee's hurting me today, let's just, uh, let's just uh, have a break. So not, not belittling people in tr- sitting on chairs. <laughs> Don't be intimidated. <laughs> like, ah! You're not, an ar- you're, uh, you know, all Arahants can, uh, can sit on the floor quite comfortably, I'm sure, but... Uh, the, um, yeah, but that was, that was quite a, uh, a, a, a kind of powerful moment for Ajahn Pasana. Like, wow. Yeah, there was like, and he was very close to Lumpur Chah for a long, long time. He said, wow, there's like not a flicker of any kind of mention uh, of that. So he, he might have been experiencing a lot of pain from that injury, but just had uh, the ability to say, well, that's, that's painful, <laughs> and to, to not... Uh, not pick that up or not let, let his mind be dominated by that. So that was a, an extraordinary uh, capacity. It's also said Ajahn Buddhadasa, he had uh, gallstones and they were going to, do, they wanted to do an operation on him to uh, remove these, these gallstones from his gallbladder. And uh, he said uh, he, uh, he wanted the surgeon to do it without an anesthetic. He said, I'm interested to investigate the feeling. Uh, the surgeon was so freaked out, <laughs> like, no, no, I can't do it. So he, Ajahn Buddhadasa was fine, but the surgeon couldn't do it. Like, it was just too, uh, like, I can't, I can't. Uh, I, I would, my hand would be shaking so much, <laughs> I couldn't, uh, couldn't do it. So not to emphasize that, but I think that the, um, when the mind is ex- exceptionally clear, then even things like physical pain, it can, the pain can be there, but the mind isn't adding anything to it, and uh, that is, is so it's still painful. But the mind is not waiting for it to be over, or trying to get rid of it, or or fearing it, or resenting it. But just is able to be completely at peace, even though there's a, 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 a sort of an exceptionally painful experience. And that I would say is a, a very helpful skill to uh, to develop, because sometimes uh, with with chronic pain, there's only a certain amount that one can do to to alleviate that, but being able to say um, no, that painful feeling, and not add to it, is um, something that is a, is uh, a, uh, going to be a powerful support. And it also not just with physical pain, but also with emotional pain. That's the, 
it, it transfers into the same domain. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. yes I have a question. Um, one of you know, a popular belief I hear outside of Buddhism is one was, is everything is one that we already covered. And the other thing that's quite um, common now is people say, oh, you can heal yourself with your pure consciousness. And so, and you do hear sometimes stories of people <laughs> themselves, you know, yeah. doing meditation, but whether it's the meditation or the karma or the change of the diet or something happened, yes. how much can the mind affect the body? Uh, to a degree. But as interesting, there was a, a friend of ours in, in California who was part of the, the group that invited Lumpur Sumato to start a monastery there. It was a guy called Daniel Barnes who was a quadriplegic. He'd been run over by a jeep when he was um, 19. He was uh, he, he was been rock climbing in Yosemite. Just come down what's called Half Dome Peak, which is about a 3,000 foot vertical cliff. He just finished climbing down it and was resting in the grass at the bottom of the cliff and this young lad who wasn't supposed to be there drove drove over him and broke his back. So he'd been in a wheelchair and was quite, he had a little bit of movement in in his arms. Uh, he could he had movement in his biceps but not his triceps. So he he uh, had a little bit of mobility in his arms but nothing in his legs. He was kind of completely paralyzed and, uh, from from here down. And so he was uh, and he was actually did a medical degree after he was injured. So he was quite f aware of the, the whole medical field. And, uh, and I was very touched when he said that that kind of um, f approach, he said it's, it's, it, makes, it, it doubles the dukkha, mm. because then you feel like a failure twice over. Like this. There, I think there was a, a, a particular writer called Bernie Siegel, who wrote a book called You Can Heal Your Life. And that's the kind of thing that if you just get it together well enough, then you can, and then when you can't heal your life, then you failed again. You know? So you follow all the instructions and you can't fix what, uh, the such things. So, but the, the, the way it's put forward is you know, just with the right attitude and the right this and that the other, then you can make everything good. So personally, I feel it's a, uh, one of the, the blessings you have of the Pali Canon is that the Buddha got ill like real illnesses. <laughs> and that's a bit different between the southern and the northern tradition. When in the northern scriptures, when the Buddha gets ill, it's a kind of teaching device. It's like he's sort of manifesting illness to, to give a particular kind of instruction. In the Pali, he's ill because he's ill. <laughs> but uh, he has dysentery or he has a, uh, an injury uh, of uh, some kind. But, um, that... It is uh, it's an ordinary illness, and it's you know, and the, with ordinary pain, and like with that passage at the uh, beginning of the the um, Maha, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the about the Buddha's last days. Yeah, he means no. I, I experience pain all the time. If I'm not completely absorbed into emptiness, I'm experiencing pain all the time, <laughs> and that. Uh, there's numerous places in the suttas where he says to Sariputta or Mahakachana or to Ananda, oh, my back is paining me, um, the assembly is still awake, I'm going to go and stretch my back, um, you, uh, please carry on giving them a Dhamma talk. And, it, and he does that quite often in the, in the suttas. And so 
it's not a it's not a kind of teaching method. It's not just a chance to get Ananda to give a Dhamma talk or, <laughs> or Sariputta. It's like no, his back is is painful, so that as he's giving a talk, he's he's actually taking steps to alleviate the the pain in his body. So even a Buddha, fully enlightened Buddha, is still taking steps to to work with those painful feelings. And so, uh, I, and I feel that's a great blessing. It's it's because it's. It's far more relatable and and human uh, than the sort of more kind of cosmic Buddha you get in the the, the northern the Mahayana Vajrayana world, um, and I I feel it's very very true to form. Or someone like Lumpur Cha, you know, but he uh, and the other forest Ajans, yeah, they get they would get sick, but then it would be the the attitude towards their sickness and how they related to it. A certain amount of of effect could be brought about by meditation. Some things could be cured. Lumpur Tate was famous for having bone cancer, and he went into he did this kind of um, what they call the Dhamma Osata, the me- the medicine of Dhamma practice, and uh, which he is described in his own autobiography. What he did um, it's kind of uh, fasting and meditating, and just uh, really focused on the the disease for I think about ten or fifteen days. And then he cured himself of bone cancer and lived for a long time afterwards. So, like, he could. <laughs> it can be. There can be an effect. But sometimes there's nothing that can be done. And that, uh, and I feel that's, that's more helpful to recognize it's not just a matter of, of your powers of mind. If, if the Buddha can't, <laughs> can't sort of uh, dispel back pain, and, uh, and, but will still be taking steps to alleviate the discomfort and saying, you know, the, the, my back is paining me, the assembly is still awake, please carry on giving a Dhamma talk, I'm going to go and stretch, my, stretch myself out to, uh, to find some relief. So he's taking steps to alleviate the pain, but uh, that, the very fact that um, he, you know, you, uh, he still wasn't creating suffering out of it, but it was just you're still uh, doing what needs to be done to look after the, the illness. I think that's a much, much more helpful example than having... Uh, you know the Buddha manifesting uh, an injury to his foot from a, that he, you know he he uh, uh, he uh, allowed the the splinter from the rock that Devadatta pushed to, to injure him as a teaching device or he got dysentery as a, to to give people a, a lesson about something so no it's just regular off the shelf dysentery <laughs> nothing special and I feel that uh, to a certain degree. We can work with our bodies, or and people can you know, should. It's valuable to take steps. But uh, again, as Lung Po Chao would would say, you know, the, about doctors and dentists, you know, you know, even dentists don't. <laughs> they, they they have bad teeth too. Or, you know, the doctors uh, the doctors are all going to die one day as well. So that um, uh, that sense of doing what you can to look after a condition. But beyond a certain point, there's you know, nothing that one can do, and just to to be at peace with it. So yeah, and it was interesting to going back to Daniel Barnes. I thought that was uh, that was a really sort of telling comment from him. So because he was in very much in the sort of partially abled community or disabled community, he said it's really murderous for the people. But then they feel that like they they should be able to fix themselves. They should be able to recover, and then 
they can't, so they feel even more of a failure or even more excluded and left out. He also told me that the people in the wheelchairs, they have a, a, a term for the, the other regular folks, which is the T, uh, TABs, temporarily able-bodied. <laughs> so that's a good... <laughs> the temporarily able-bodied. It's a good way of referring to oneself. So yeah, it was, that was very insightful, I thought. That, uh, and so he was quite anti that sort of Bernie Siegel approach. Yes. But I never understand why Buddha said he could live another year if Ananda said in mid-pledge. How could he live another long time with his physical body? Huh? Well, uh, the, the ways of Buddhas are mysterious, but uh, apparently, according to the, um, the, the way things work, that he could have uh, applied his uh, mental powers in order to, to deliberately extend his life substantially. And, and he said it, I think it's actually about 48 times he dropped a hint to Ananda. Yeah. It's like three times over. In, uh, in in about um, <coughs> the um, uh, in you know, many 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 places, um, uh, so about, I think about uh, in fourteen different places, whatever three times fourteen are seven six forty two different places. Um, the uh, uh, and he hinted three times over in in fourteen different places, and that if if uh, a Buddha was requested, he could exercise this. Uh, the spiritual powers, the idipada, and could deliberately extend uh, his life, his lifespan, if he was requested. And then, oh wow, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and Ananda didn't get it until there was an earthquake. And said, oh wow, what was that earthquake? Well, that was that the the Tathagata decided not to extend his lifespan. So. I mean, I can't speak from inside knowledge of how Buddha's minds work. That's one of the four achintayas, the um, imponderables. But there, uh, a Buddha can seemingly uh, deliberately extend their, their lifespan to, uh, to a large extent, just through willpower. And it seems that Ananda, Venerable Ananda, took a lot of blames. Huh? Yes. A few things. Yeah, he got, he got criticized for five different things. Uh, the... Uh, at the first council, he got he got hammered. <laughs> Five different things. One of them was was requesting the Buddha to establish the nuns' order. Yes. So that was was one thing. Uh, another was um, when he was sewing a bathing cloth for the Buddha, he touched it with his foot. Uh, that was, and then and then gave it to the Buddha, which is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so that, um, uh, but he graciously accepted. Okay, well. And then one of them was not not asking the Buddha to ex- ex- uh, not getting the hint forty two times when uh, the, the Buddha had said that he could extend his lifespan if if so so requested. But he graciously accepted the criticism and said, yeah, I, uh, "I request forgiveness for for these wrongdoings." Yeah, like he's the real Arahant. Others, are <laughs> 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 but he wasn't. He was. <laughs> Yeah, he was uh, he was not an arahant at that point. That was that was I think bef- uh, before the the uh, the first council. That was before the first council, and then it was running up to the 
the the beginning of the first council, then there was this di- and Mahakasapa, who was this sort of um, very hardline kind of ascetic, said if he's not an arahant, he can't come to the meeting. And so then, uh, which is a, I th- another another great story, very very believable from the the scriptures where. Uh, Ananda's been told, you know, you, you can't, you, you know, we know that you've memorized all of the master's teachings and you've got perfect recall, but you can't come to the meeting because you're not, you're, not, you're only an anagami, you know, you're only a non-returner. If you're an arahant, you could come to the meeting, but if you're not an arahant, you can't come to the meeting. So no pressure. And then they, they were gathered in Rajagaha, the Satapani cave was where they were going to meet and... Uh, and interest, you know, the, uh, interestingly, King Ajatasattu kind of sponsored the first council, so he was the, the one who set, helped set everything up for them to gather. But Mahakaspa said, if you're not on our hand, you can't come to the meeting. So then it tells the story of, of Ananda the night before the, the meeting, spending the whole night sitting and walking and trying to make the, the, the final breakthrough. And, and then at, uh, people are probably familiar with the story that... Uh, he sees the, the sky starting to get light in the early morning and he realizes I've been meditating all night, just sitting and walking and I still haven't made the final, the final breakthrough. You know, oh well, it's going to be a long day, I might as well get some rest. <laughs> and so he uh, then he said, after his, he sat down on the, on the dian, on the, the bench, to, um, the platform, he said, and after his feet left the ground and before his, his head met the pillow, he reached uh, full and complete enlightenment. So when he gave up, that was when the, the moment of, of realization ripened. So, it was, so that's a very significant... Uh, all that trying, I've got to, i got to, i got to... That was the, the thing that was getting in the... That was the last barrier that was getting in the way. And it was the, oh wow, <laughs> I give up. <laughs> On the I give up, then that was the uh, that was all that was the last uh, obstacle to to be let go of, and then and again I think this is a little bit of an uh, that I can I can uh, understand or can credit as being true. The uh, I think there's a bit of an elaboration when it said that he arrived at the meeting flying at that, you know a meter off the ground. He kind of uh, uh, flew into the meeting at, uh, in the lotus posture. And just to tell people, hey, you know, <coughs> in case anyone's in any doubt that I've, I, I've finished my uh, finished my work, he just sort of cruised into the meeting, and then he could uh, uh, recite the the the, uh, the, the sutta teachings. Yes. Um, I'm just that makes me just wonder about who is itself professed the the stage of these stages of. Um, Enlightenment, and then this final stage. Who, who, who decides that? Who knows, or who, 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 yeah. It depends a bit. Um, as uh, in the uh, in the scriptures, often the way it's depicted is a per- the the individual has this realization that you know birth is ended, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. There is no more of this to come. And sometimes they will they will go to the Buddha, and then they will to to mention that uh, I've conf- I've finished my work, and the Buddha said. And often the Buddha will say, actually, some devas came along and told me already. You know, so uh, you know, I'd heard the news. Um, I th- there's one or two places where someone uh, somebody reaches full enlightenment and they don't they don't realize it. 
That's pretty. That's that's pretty uncommon, though. I think there's just one or two places. I can't remember exactly where, but um, that uh, <coughs> they uh, uh, they uh, are they haven't sort of uh, twigged that that's uh, they, what they're experiencing is is full enlightenment. That's uh, then. But then the um, we have in this monastics we have strict rules about not. Not mentioning your any kind of realization or attainment to lay people. You can to other monastics, but to to lay people, it's a it's a, a, a it's an, a, an offense on the on a par with killing a, deliberately killing an animal or telling a deliberate lie. So it's a fairly weighty, even if it's true. And that's so, because, of because of not wanting to make a big deal out of those um, attainments, and also how people. Uh, generally, get very excited about those things, or comparing people. Mm, or, or then end up feeling yeah, or feeling the, uh, inferior, mm-hmm. and so it's a, um, um, it's not something to be ashamed of, <laughs> but uh, it's just that avoiding making a big deal of that. So some uh, some people are very 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 strict on that. You do find um, sometimes that. Uh, say within Thailand um, and uh, probably other uh, Buddhist countries as well in the southern Buddhist world that there's you know, uh, sometimes uh, one, uh, an enlightened Ajahn has made mention of that or has talked about how they've so their, their practice has borne fruit and then that's recorded and written down and typed up and then published um, but uh, anyone who goes around declaring themselves to be an, an Arahant yeah, uh, it's a sort of ta-da, look at me, and you can generally <laughs> actually someone today, one of the monks, was saying, uh, "Had I heard of um, uh, this this particular person? Dan- I think it was Daniel Ingram, um, who sort of puts you know Daniel Ingram the Arahant on the on his sort of book cover. You know, he calls himself an Arahant on the book covers. And I thought, well, immediately makes me feel yeah. so. So I just heard about him today." And, yeah, I don't read a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 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 uh, it, so that um, yeah, anyone who sort of calls themselves an arahant or sort of declares that, then generally, uh, it's uh, not particularly trustworthy. And uh, <coughs> the um, it was uh, the we, <laughs> I remember Arjun Sujita. There was a. In the early years of, of Chithurst, there was somebody who came to visit, came and stayed at the monastery, who was um, uh, who re- related to themselves as a bodhisattva, but they um, and they were kind of very say, impressed with their their own spiritual qualities. But they, uh, this guy, refused to eat anything that was cooked in in, in a Teflon pan. He wanted to see where, 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 how everything was being cooked in the kitchen, because he had this thing about Teflon. It's like, <laughs> so, no, I'm a bodhisattva, but I can't eat anything out of this, that's cooked in Teflon. And so um, that was. Uh, I remember Ajahn Sujita saying, uh, "Well, arahants are difficult to live with, but bodhisattvas are really a headache." <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those Ajahn Sujita remarks that kind of like, <laughs> sort of wry quarter of a smile at the edge of his mouth like yeah arahants are difficult to live with and bodhisattvas are impossible yeah. so uh, it, it was uh, I think the you know, people can have a 
an impression of their own attainment, but pretty much if anyone's talking about it or making a thing of it, then it's best to keep a distance. The, uh, just mean that they, might it just mean that they, um, yeah, or does it just automatically go together that, or, that you wouldn't, that, and that also that you wouldn't because it, you would have attained certain qualities of Humility and yeah. Also, the, the way that the mind relates to personhood. Yeah. You know, there in, in a way, there's no such thing as an enlightened person. Yeah. There's the enlightened mind that knows personhood arising and passing away, but it's not really a person. So that um, the uh, just the way that uh, that uh, it, that kind of thing is spoken of. You know, that the flavor of I <laughs> can can come through very very solidly, and that. Uh, well, it was a, there was a fame. I wasn't uh, there when this this took place, but uh, somebody, uh, a monk, came to Wat Bapong to see Ajahn Chah and wanted to declare to him that he'd realized the the, the um, level of anagami, and um, uh, so and made this sort of this kind of declaration in front of the the sangha you know, with, with Lumpur Chah, and, and Lumpur said, "Oh, anagami." Uh, it's it's funny, you know. In, in my village, that's an, that's another word. That's a word we use for a mangy dog. <laughs> and this monk got really angry and got got very upset and was kind of very uh, very offended and sort of took off. And and then Lumpur Chah said, "Oh, an angry anagami. That's a first. <laughs> <laughs> Never met one of those before. So." Uh, but uh, <coughs> that uh, it's also said, you know, that um, because in, in our Vinaya discipline, there's that uh, a lot of um, one of the most serious rules, one of the four defeat rules, is falsely claiming enlightenment, you know, like deliberately claiming to be enlightened or had to have some attainment, like entering jhana or, or, or being a stream enter or whatever. That if if you know it's not true and claiming it to be true, then that's the end of your monastic life. You're kind of finito right there, and so it's a it's on a par with deliberately killing a, another human being. It's it's a very very serious offence, and that the the Buddha was very uh, and it was it's a, such a weight because I could uh, the impression you get as in his time as it is today that people were quite ready to declare themselves to be an enlightened being to get the sort of reputation, the fame and, and the support and just the kind of um, social strokes of, you know, I'm a, I'm a great being. And that uh, when it was, uh, in a sense, um, feeding on the, the faith of the, of the public and, and misusing people's faith. So he calls someone who falsely claims attainments is like one of the great thieves. You're, 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 you're. Uh, it's like a, you're, you're taking advantage of people's faith, and then if they find out, then that you're not really enlightened, and you've been deceiving people, then their faith is really damaged. And if they do meet a great a being, then they are, are likely to be suspicious because they've already been lied to, and so that um, it was. Uh, so he's quite, it's quite specific in the Vinaya teachings, and so treading very, very carefully in that whole area. Is encouraged so that you, you, uh, that you're not making claims or, or presenting that in in a, a way that is uh, is at all deceptive, 
Uh, also, about other people, you know, you, some, the, I th I'm not sure if it's in the main Vinaya text, but uh, or in the commentaries where it says, if you have two monks and they're saying, oh, you know, you should go and listen to him, he's an arahant, you know, and then they, and they kind of have a deal and he says, you should go and talk to him, yeah, he's an arahant. They kind of, they, they both kind of uh, back up each other. Not, you know, neither of them really, really are, have those, uh, have those realizations, but they're kind of promoting their mates so they'll, they'll both get the reputation of being. So if you're, if you're boosting somebody else, to, to again to delude people to to deceive and to get fame and and uh, uh, your reputation and status spiritual status then that's also blameworthy <laughs> so in the Theravada world it, you know in the northern Buddhist world it's a bit more um, they have kind of uh, like in Japan somebody would be uh, give ha have a certification as having reached a particular uh, level of insight or realization, and their teacher would make a kind of they have like a declaration or they have a ceremony to say, "Oh, this person has realized Kensho or Satori, and they've had this kind of ex this realization." So they're given a like a um, literally a kind of s certificate and that's sort of stamped in China as well, I believe that that kind of the teacher certifying a person's uh, level of realization, but. In the southern world, it's it, there's no paperwork. It's <laughs> you're kind of, uh, drawing close to to those who are who are wise, and then uh, and so it's very I informal. And so a reputation, a person's reputation, can can spread. And but very very rarely will anybody actually acknowledge like yeah, it's, that's true. So lean towards reticence in that respect. So yeah, so in this, it might be possible to have this experience and still be unable to fully let go. Whether you can or cannot let go, don't let this bother you. Before anything else, you must at least develop and sustain this level of awareness and fixed determination. So again, that goes back to uh, one of the points I was quoting Lumpur Char on the other day. Like 50 to 70% of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to. Like, yeah, that... Yeah, I uh, <laughs> let go, let let go, let go, let go, let let go, let go, and it's like, no, it's not happening. <laughs> so that to being patient with that inability to to let go, and uh, or um, the inability to forgive or to um, drop a particular unskillful habit, so that steady quality of patience and uh, I feel that's one of the most practical and helpful teachings of, of, of Lumpur Cha that uh, it's, the, it's still the practice is that you're knowing that you should let go you know that this is stupid to be hanging on to this this is just creating more difficulty more trouble but <laughs> the message isn't quite reaching it hasn't trickled all the way through the system and, but that patient steady application then um and uh, and as again as Lumpur Cha said a number of times, uh, it's only when you really know the pain of attachment that the letting go will happen. Until that really sinks in, then uh, uh, we the, the 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 clinging will sustain itself. 
So maybe I'll leave it there. It's just coming up to seven, so I'll finish there for today.